Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. My name's Gary. For those that may not know me, uh, we're, thank you. Thank you for noticing. Uh, we're in our last Sunday of Advent, uh, trying to set aside time each week to talk about how to best prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. Uh, I have to do a poll first. Let me just ask this question. How many of you are traveling this Christmas, going somewhere else, family, friends, out of town? And how many are having people come to you, coming to town to celebrate Christmas? That's a good chunk of the... uh, Yeah, I would guess uh, it's an informal poll, not official, but I'd guess about 80% of the people either are going or expecting people. It's certainly a time of gathering. Uh, Judy and I are uh, leaving this week to go to Southern California. It might be warmer, um, but we're excited not just because we're going to California, but uh, three of our four kids and four of our six grandkids will be there, so that, that'll that be a, a sweet time. Uh, why did I share that? I don't know. I, th- I figured you wanted to know my travel schedule and know where I'm going, what I'm, what I'm doing. Well, hey, uh, today... Today I want to spend some time talking about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Uh, it's, uh, I'm only going to be dealing with seven verses of the story. You might think, oh, this will be a short deal. But I tell you, the more I dug, the more I looked at, considered those seven verses, there's so, so much to uncover. It tells us a lot about God. It tells about just his character, the way he interacts with the world, the way he orchestrates things. And it also tells us a lot about Mary, but Mary, again, is a reflection of us and the, the whole birth situation. Um, so that's a quick trailer. Uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into Luke 2, and we're going to jump into the first five verses to start with. And this is in the uh, New International Version. It starts this way, a story we all have probably heard. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child." Well, there's, there's a story we're all familiar with. Uh, well, the first question I'll throw out there is who's in charge? Who controls who here? It seems like it starts out, it's interesting that Luke starts out with Caesar Augustus did this. Uh, <laughs> just kind of interesting to think about. Uh, is Caesar in charge of this event? Is God in charge? Who controls who in this deal? I like to think that uh, God used Caesar to direct Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem to have their first child, uh, partly because it's what he prophesied. It's what God said would happen hundreds of years before the prophet Micah uh, prophesied this event in this way. And he says this, Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathoth, I don't know how to pronounce that <laughs> I can pretend I know how to pronounce that. I don't. Uh, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Um, So there it is. God prophesied it. Uh, (laughs) 
It's interesting. You could think about it this way. Why didn't God just appear to Joseph and Mary and tell them, hey, I need you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to go to Bethlehem because that's where you're destined. That's where I prophesied you to go. Because remember, if you know this, if you read the story carefully, God appears, well, an angel appears to Joseph four different times in this period of time surrounding Jesus' birth to direct him where he should go, what should he do, here's what I'm going to do. But he doesn't say anything about this. And I just uh, wonder why. Uh, I think uh, I think a couple things. I think it's demonstrating that he's in charge. I think he lets Caesar make this decision, and then he uses it for his own purpose. I, I think God is, it's a good reminder that God's in charge of both the secular world and the spiritual world. Sometimes we think that the spiritual world is separate from, that God doesn't have control over that, uh, the, the secular world. Uh, but I think here's just one more chance that God gets to say, nope, I'm in charge. I'm going to use the secular world here to direct uh, steps, uh, which might be a question for us. Does God use the secular world to fulfill his will, to maybe fulfill his will in your life? Uh, and I would think, yeah, probably, sometimes, maybe. Uh, you know, you might think, I got, I got this job offer from this secular company, and I'm not sure if that's, probably can't, uh, got to discount that one because it didn't come from God directly. And we need to understand, I don't think, no, don't trust the source of the secular uh, direction. You trust God, but you also recognize that God controls both worlds. God controls everything. And he, I think he delights in using well, the secular world in doing that. Uh, does that mean that God violates our will? Did God make Caesar do that just to fulfill what God wanted to do? Sometimes we might think that in our, our life. I don't think so. I don't think he did. I think he used Caesar's free choice, what he intended to do, to conform it to his will. I think that's much more uh, dramatic that God would, would use free will as a way to uh, direct it toward his will. Uh, and I think that's true in our life as well. Uh, sometimes we think that, uh, and he knows the beginning from the end, he knows what choices you're going to make. Uh, but I don't think it derails what he wants to do in our life if we make the wrong choice or if we fail that somehow we're not in control of that. We can't derail what God wants to do in our life. He will take whatever we do uh, if we trust him and conform that to his will. That's just the way God is. I think that's one of the mysteries and marvels of, uh, of what God's about. Uh, so that's, that's that lesson. Uh, not only can you not do anything to derail his plans in the world or in your life, uh, but just look at the world. Sometimes we just think, wow, the world is totally out of control. Uh, it's clear that God is not involved in so much of what goes on in the world. And it's true. God allows free will. God has his limits. God will intervene when necessary. Uh, but as out of control as the world seems to be, and it is from a secular point of view, it's not out of his control. Uh, and I think we need to be reminded of that, regardless of what situations we're in, Regardless of what situation the world is in, he is still in control. And uh, that's a good re reminder. Uh, well, second, I want to dive into this Caesar character just a minute. You got a little history lesson about Herod last week. And uh, this week you get to hear a 
a little bit about Caesar. Um, it does fit into the story, and I think it, it makes the point that I already directed, but uh, a, a second point as well. Caesar, Augustus in this case, uh, is the Caesar from about 32 B.C. to 14 A.D., so all during this time, that's, that's Caesar's, Caesar Augustus's rule. Uh, Augustus was born in 63 B.C. He was born to, his father was Gaius Octavius, part of the privileged class there in Rome. Uh, he was actually Julius Caesar's brother. Uh, and at the age of four, uh, Augustus was orphaned. Father died, and he was raised with other family uh, at that time. Well, shift forward a little bit, get to 46 uh, B.C., and that's when Julius Caesar takes control, wins, wins control, I should say, wins a battle for the throne. He becomes the dictator of the Roman Empire, not the emperor. We'll find out in a minute. Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, but Julius Caesar was the first dictator. Well, at that time, at 46, he didn't have an heir. He didn't have any... Uh, Anybody to be his, he didn't have a son or daughter to be his direct heir. So he adopted Augustus. So Augustus becomes the adopted son of, uh, of Julius Caesar. Well, uh, Augustus didn't know that until Julius Caesar died. Reading the will, he realized, I'm, I'm an heir to the throne. But it didn't automatically make him a dictator of Rome. There was a big battle that ensued for many years. And actually, uh, but he did take his position as an adopted son of Julius Caesar to great advantage. He uh, uh, joined forces with Mark Anthony, and they together won a number of battles and won control of the Roman Empire. Mark Anthony, if you know his story, goes to Egypt and uh, rules uh, that part of the kingdom of the Roman Empire uh, while Augustus is ruling in Rome. Uh, but that wasn't enough for Augustus, so roughly eight, nine, ten years later, he uh, travels to Egypt and destroys uh, Mark Anthony's forces there to consolidate his power. Uh, that was about 33 B.C. About 32 B.C., he becomes uh, the ruler. Um, he was a sharp guy. He realized, what am I going to do to consolidate power? What am I going to do to make sure this isn't a two-year thing, somebody else? I want this to be my dynasty, if you will. Uh, so he took his position and mixed it with religion of the day. Uh, religion was a huge, important factor, but up until this time, it wasn't part of the political arena. So Augustus introduced that. And about 30, about the time he took uh, reign of the throne in, in Rome, uh, there was a comet sighting. A star appeared in, in the sky. And he took advantage of that. Uh, there are two, there's a Greek god, Helios, who's the god that rides the chariot in the sky, uh, known as the sun god. And uh, <laughs> so he pounced all over that one and said, see that? See that star that appeared? See that s streak? Uh, that's Julius Caesar. My father, he's the god. He now reigns. He runs the chariot across the sky. He's the god that you need to worship. And, and I'm the son of God. Oh, coincidental. I'm the son of God. From now on, the emperor is now going to be worshipped. Uh, that's when emperor worship began, was with Augustus. And if you don't see the connection really clearly here, uh, his whole message is, hey, I am the son of God, 
And we talked about it a number of weeks ago that he's the one who initiated the whole euangelion, the gospel, the good news. The son of God is coming. The king is going to take control. You get to be a part of his kingdom. It's good news. Uh, I just, it's just fascinating that then less than 30 years later, here Jesus enters the real throne room, if you will, where he displays who he is incognito, not in the same way that Augustus did. Uh, so that, it just tells me that, again, God's in control, but I, I think it also tells us that the world is full of counterfeit gods, illusions or shadows of the real thing. Uh, lots of things in our secular world that people kind of worship or depend on or put their allegiance to, and some of them are, are good, but they're a shadow of the real, of the real God. If you look at Jewish history, you can find that same scenario true when God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery, and he uh, produces ten plagues as signs to get Pharaoh to release the Israelites. Not a coincidence that each one of those ten is connected to a God that they worshipped in that culture. To say, you have your gods, but it's a shadow of the real God. And they couldn't match the same signs uh, that Moses was able to do representing the real God. In the same way, Jesus, when he came, John made it part of his gospel to conclude the seven I am's or the seven signs of Jesus. Uh, also not a coincidence that those were related to gods of the culture. Uh, when he would say things like, I am the bread of life, the God series, or I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Those were all related to a God that was uh, of their secular culture that was attempting to to be the God of their life. Uh, So that's the world that we find uh, this story, find Jesus entering the world in that kind of culture, in that kind of situation. So we're going to go back to Luke 2, and uh, we're going to overlap a little bit. I'll start with 4 and just read through 7, and then we'll... Digest that one a little bit. So here it is, Luke 2, 4 to 7. This is in the new King James Version. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So that's a common Christmas story. you probably read it a number of times. Um, <laughs> well, first let me start with a little intro. Bethlehem. Bethlehem's about six miles south of Jerusalem, uh, just off the main road, the main Roman road, uh, which will become important in a second. Uh, and why were they there? Well, uh, God directed them to, there because Joseph was of the line lineage of David. David was born in Bethlehem. And God wants to demonstrate that Joseph is in the right line to give birth to the new king, the throne that will never end. Um, so that's Bethlehem. Oh, and I might have to mention this, by the way. We're, those don't know me well, maybe don't know that we're a very spiritual family. Uh, my mom, my own mother, was born in Bethlehem. So, a little trivia for you. And, not only that, my oldest brother was born on Christmas Day. (laughs) 
you're thinking, this guy has some pedigree. Well, aside from the fact it was Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it's a small community there. But my brother was born on Christmas Day, and my mom, well, I don't know, I just had to throw that in there and give you false credentials or something. But, but there's my story. Well, we think of this story, we think of this scene, we've read it a lot of times, we kind of have this, at least I do, maybe you don't, but it seems like the tenor of the story I just read is like this frantic story, it's like... Joseph and Mary are staggering into Bethlehem. On, you know, she's on a donkey, and she's nine months pregnant. And it's the sun's going down, and they're entering Jerusalem, or they're entering Bethlehem. And Joseph, my water broke. We've got to find a place to stay. Oh, well, there's, oh my gosh, there's no, no room in the inn in Bethlehem Inn. What are we going to do? And then we have this image of Mary and Joseph wandering the hillside, looking for a cave, a stable. Where are we going to have our baby? And, uh, and that's kind of... I think that might be an overstatement of what was actually going on there. Uh, well, there, that wasn't actually, that inn probably wasn't there then. It was, you probably picked up on that, but there is a Bethlehem inn. Um, anyway, let's look closer at this story and see if it maybe has a more accurate uh, depiction of this scene. Uh, first of all, verse 4, again, it tells us that Joseph is going to Bethlehem because he has family there. Uh, so he has a lot of family because all of his family is coming there for the census. So he's got a lot of family in Bethlehem. Uh, Elizabeth, as we found out a couple weeks ago, Elizabeth was living in Judea. We don't know if it didn't say what town, but it's got to be near there somewhere. So both Joseph and Mary have a lot of family in the area that they're all gathered. Uh, that's important. And then a really key verse is uh, verse 4 where it says, while, let me read it, uh, where is it, where is it? Oh, while they were there, the time came, well, the time was completed for Mary to give birth to her firstborn son. So while they were there implies they'd been there for a while. Not just they got there and had a baby. Uh, they'd been there. Uh, so that's a little clearer picture. We don't know exactly where, but probably with family. Because we also have to remember that hospitality was... Uh, if not the number one, well, right up there in the, one of the top cultural things is hospitality is everything. Uh, you know, there's a thread going out, and this is part of what I believe, that, hey, Mary was probably shunned. That's why there was no room in, in the inn, which I learned. There's also a word in the Jewish uh, world, the insula. The insula is the father's home, his compound, where the family resides. And uh, I always... Uh, last number of years thought uh, or was told uh, that that's probably what's going on here. So this, she's shunned from the insula. There's no room in the insula for Mary. But in that culture, that really doesn't make that much sense because the hospitality is so important. Even if, even if Mary was shamed by being pregnant before she's married, the family would still take her in. The family would still take Joseph in and combine that with the with the idea that they've been there a number of days. They're staying somewhere, probably with family. Well, then we come to the key verse, verse 7, and again in the new King James Version. I'll read it again. It says, uh, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Seems straightforward. They're not able to be in the inn. Well, <clears throat> If we look at that word, uh, there were inns in those days, and inns in those days were typically on the main Roman road uh, to house travelers, 
And Jesus told a story back in Luke 10 about the good Samaritan. Uh, Remember that story? It's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, the main road that goes through there. And, uh, you know, this guy gets mugged on the road and religious people and the Pharisees and the uh, different people would pass by, the priests would pass by. But then came the good Samaritan. And this is how the good Samaritan dealt with the situation. Luke 10, 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, uh, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. So there's the use of the inn. And the Greek word in that context is (laughs) pandokian. Now, some of you may say, I know Greek, and that's not how you pronounce it. I'm betting on the fact you don't know Greek, and I can just throw that out. But there's the word (laughs) pandokian. Uh, in Greek is the word the proper translation would be in in that sense. Uh, well, if we uh, the problem is the Greek word in Luke, Luke 2, is a different word. It's the Greek word kataluma. And kataluma, put an A on the end of that, is better translated the guest room or the upper room. Hmm. Now that adds, that's kind of an intriguing term. But that's the Greek word used there. And in the later translations, and uh, if you read it from... Uh, the NIV, it reads this way. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Well, where do we find that term used again? Uh, In uh, Luke 22, Jesus is trying to prepare for the Last Supper. We remember that story. Well, Jesus tells John and Peter, he says, "Go, go ahead of us into the town and and prepare a place for our Last Supper. And they go, where do we go? What do we do? And Jesus says this in Luke 22. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where's the kathaluma? The upper room, if you will, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So here he's looking for the kathaluma, the guest room, the upper room of somebody else's house that they want to use for the Last Supper. Um, I think that's more accurate what's happening here. If we have a diagram of a kathaluma in the first century Israel, this is what it looks like. It's very graphic, very detailed. Uh, but that's generally what it, what it implies, is the main family lives on the main floor. And uh, in rural areas, poor housing, not in the urban areas so much, but they had this kind of layout. They would bring their two or three livestock of whatever kind, uh, sheep, cattle, whatever. They'd bring them in uh, either because it's nightfall to protect them or it's winter uh, to protect them. But they, they would have room on their main floor, uh, stable area for their animals. Uh, and if go to another diagram, a little similar, but a little maybe a little easier to partake. You walk in, there's the main room, a couple of side rooms. There's a little stable area. And typically they'd have feeding troughs right there in the main room of the house. So that's a, maybe a clear picture. I think this is a better picture of what happened uh, for the, uh, surrounding uh, the birth. Uh, what it does tell us is that the guest room was probably occupied. Maybe they got there after some other family member or maybe a prominent family member got the upper room, got the guest room. Uh, so it's not like they didn't have a place. It's just that when it came time to give birth, they didn't have the privacy or the, uh, the benefit of being in the, the guest room, the preferred room. Uh, so they had their, 
child there. So, fascinating, you're thinking. Yes, that's good information, Gary. Uh, what does that mean? Well, oh, by the way, a little side note. I, I personally believe this may not be right, but from what I've read and just thinking through it, I think they stayed there for probably a year, maybe longer, maybe two years. Uh, why do I say that? Because in the narrative in Matthew, uh, the, the, the magi, the wise men came from the east, confronted Herod, where do we go to worship the baby? Herod finds out from his scholars, uh, oh, it's in Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem. And if you, if you read it, they come to the house where the young child was, and they, they honor and give gifts, and then they're warned in a dream to go to Egypt. And then Herod, discerning the time that was given to him by the Magi, decides to kill every baby between birth and two years old. So it may not have been two, maybe just a year old. He's just trying to make sure that he covers his bases. Um, but that makes much more sense. Because then afterwards, he, they go from Egypt back up to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grows up. doesn't really make sense. They go to Nazareth, and then they're warned to go to Egypt, and they come back. Uh, so they're probably there for a while. Uh, again, you're thinking, great information, Gary. What's the point? Uh, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm almost there now. Uh, I want our point today, I want to focus on just this whole idea of the house and the, the, the room that's in the house. The question would be, what room do we have for Jesus in our house when we look at Christmas story? What room is available to Jesus? What room do we have? And the first question, or the first thing to consider is, is he even invited in the house? Uh, you know, there's, there, could be, there could be people here, certainly a lot of people in our world that maybe celebrate Christmas uh, that believe in who Jesus is, but maybe he's never been invited into their house. Uh, that's a little too personal. My, uh, I believe in you, uh, but I, this is my house. Uh, examples of that would be both Caesar and Herod. Caesar said, I don't have any room for Jesus in my house because I'm, I'm the God of my house. Uh, and maybe some of us uh, are like that. I was certainly like that uh, first year or two of college. This is... I believe in Jesus, but this is my house. Um, I have no room for Jesus in this house. Uh, Herod, the same way. Jesus was a threat to his throne. Uh, and that's really part of the implication of what Jesus is saying is who, which one's going to be the king? Which one's going to rule on the throne in our life? Uh, so that's that example. But, but maybe for, for most of us, it uh, gets down to, well, Jesus is in my house, but what... What space does he have? What room does he have? What access does he have in my house? Uh, when we were, uh, when I was doing Young Life for tons of years, we had this little pamphlet that we used to give to kids that gave their life to Christ. Uh, Robert Boyd Munger, somebody I'm sure you all know well. Uh, but it's a great little analogy book. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it just a, it's just a great um, walk-through analogy about Hey, you've invited Jesus into your life. What, what rooms does he occupy in your house? Are there areas in your house that are closed off to him? He kind of walks through all the rooms, like the rec room, our social life. Uh, that's kind of my room. I direct that one. Uh, you can have the, uh, the family room. That's a good room for you. Uh, my spiritual room, my chapel, if you will. Uh, you know, maybe there you look at your entertainment room, at your den or your media room or the... Uh, what, what books do you read? What things do you see? Is he a part of that room or is that what you control? Um, and she kind of goes through all that. And, it's, and maybe you got the hall closet. That that's, 
Uh, yeah, that's stuff I, uh, I don't want you to see. It's, I'll, I'll take care of that. I'll clean that room up. And so that is just an intriguing little deal. And then the last chapter in here is called Transferring the Title. And I love that because that's ultimately the, the issue when you talk about Jesus in your house. Uh, does he have access to all your house? And ultimately, the idea of coming to the realization that, hey, it's not my house. It's your house. I'm giving my house to you. You come in and control. You come in and you take the throne in my house. Uh, just direct me what I'm supposed to do, but it's, it's now your house. We're going to do a, a, a baptism here in a minute, and one of the verses I love to use on there, just an illustration, uh, was my, one of my life verses, is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm no longer in charge of my house. Uh, but it's Christ who lives in me. Uh, the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. A great picture again. But I love that. That's, that's where we find ourselves. Um, my encouragement as we uh, move into the week of Christmas is to consider what rooms are available to Jesus in my house. What, what place does he take? Uh, can we create space for him uh, in there? And I... I would go as far as to give you three things you can do to make him more a part of Christmas Day. Uh, these are things that we've done in part. Uh, I'd like to say from this point on, I'd like to be doing all three of these things every year. But there's times where, and maybe it's true for you, you know, you go with, travel somewhere, you're, you have people coming and house is full, you get up in the morning, you open presents, you have your brunch, you do your thing, maybe you, uh, you know, have big football watch party then you have another meal and then pretty soon the day's gone it's december 26th and you kind of have to ask was was jesus even in the house was jesus this is his day and we've made it about us and all those things are great but is he part of that uh with us and so three things one uh number one read the christmas story uh is that part of your christmas routine some of you probably do that we, we have done that. I'd like to say we always do that, but we haven't always done that. Uh, sometimes it's Christmas Eve, but sometimes it's Christmas Day. But before you open presents, uh, let's tell the story about what the real present is. Let's tell the story about what the greatest gift ever given, particularly for kids, that they don't get caught up in what Christmas means to them without knowing that Jesus is really the, the story uh, that Christmas is all about. Uh, number two, make sure you use mealtimes to give thanks to Jesus, to recognize uh, his place in this day for you, for your family. Uh, that's two. Number three, uh, this is something Judy, uh, I don't know if she, I, I didn't ask her. I don't know if it's something she just started doing or did in her family, but she makes a happy birthday Jesus cake every Christmas. Uh, even when we go on vacation, she'll go to the store and get supplies so she can make a cake. And it's a white cake. Uh, got the little green and red kind of jello stripes in it. I don't know what she does. And then she puts candles on it, and we all sing Happy Birthday, Jesus. Um, that's been a great part of our tradition because it's his birthday. I mean, can you imagine having a big party for everybody comes over for somebody's birthday and you don't say Happy Birthday to them? That'd be ridiculous. But we do that with Jesus too many times. Uh, so those are just three little ideas. But more importantly, uh, just... Let us meditate. Let us think about where does Jesus fit in uh, in my house uh, when I look at Christmas.
Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.